You're listening to Future Theater Radio with Bill and Nancy Burns, right here on the Dark Matter Radio Network and PSN Radio. Yeah. Hello, everybody. It's August 3rd, 2015, and we are your co-hosts, Bill, that's me, and Nancy. Hello, everybody. Burns, and we are broadcasting on Future Theatre Live from the banks of Primrose Creek in beautiful Solberry Village on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio. Our producer is Angel Espino. Say hello, Angel. Hello, Angel. And our guests tonight are two very interesting people. Richard Grossinger, who is a, um, a member of the very famous Grossinger's family uh, from the resort up in the Catskills, uh, as well as being Richard Hoagland's publisher, and my writing partner on the Mickey Rooney book, uh, but the Dr. Feelgood book, uh, Rick Lertzman. And one of the things we're going to talk about is Grossinger's Back in the 1950s, at, at a very important time in American show business history, when the resort first expanded, and we want to find out, was Richard Grossinger there? Was he there with the whole Milton Blackstone, Eddie Cantor, Eddie Fisher stuff? And then what's it like being a publisher who's way out new age, which is really what he is? Um, talk about the kind of books he's written, talk about the monuments of Mars, talk about really being a cutting-edge publisher all the way out doing things that other publishers simply won't go near. So that's what we're going to talk about. Okay, sounds good. But I have to tell you that on the uh, biography page uh, that I've linked up to our uh, page on futuretheater.com, you will see that Richard Grossinger uh, starts out his biography with not actually talking about the Grossinger father. Have you read this section? Oh, that's right. He does not do that. And so I thought it, it seems a little sensitive. So I'm just saying you might want to tread carefully. Well, no, I already, I already exchanged emails with him about those early years at Grossinger's. And um, I, I just remember when I was there, not at Grossinger's myself. No, I, I remember too. Oh, it was, our, it no, was no, our honeymoon. Right. That was 1980. But I'm harking all the way back to the 1950s when um, we would play, uh, uh, the waiters from our camp would play the waiters at Grossinger's. Oh, wow. Like Dirty Dancing. Yeah, that, that, uh, that was Grossinger's. That was the original yeah. Grossinger's to me all the way back in the 1950s. And I had gotten to know some of the nieces, uh, Jenny Grossinger's nieces. And so when we were writing the Dr. Feelgood book, it was such a shock because I knew about the Eddie Fisher story. And we'll, we'll go into it in the show, but this very famous Eddie Fisher story. It's how the singer, Eddie Fisher, the last of the crooner singers from the 1950s, how Eddie Fisher got to be a national sensation. Um, but now tell me, you know, I know you've told me this a million times, but is Eddie Fisher Jewish or Italian? No, Eddie Fisher is Jewish, but the funny part about it is he had such an Italian voice singing, Oh, my papa, and wish you were here, and I'm walking behind you, and songs like that, 
that they nicknamed him Eddie Fischetti. Ah, uh, I thought that was his real name. No, no, it was Eddie no, Fish. Fischetti. Okay, well, okay. And why... Okay, I wonder if we're the first people to ever uh, sort of uh, take Richard Grosinger and put him in a corner and say, Richard, we were honeymooning at your family's resort. I bet millions of people have said oh, that. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, um, and that was such an odd weekend, too, because one of the really great highlights, uh, it was like the, I think it was the one of the few, few times with this one person I actually had a living premonition of the future. With what person? The, the person we met at Grossinger's was an attorney and his wife, who, is, who was the judge who sentenced <laughs> um, uh, Martha Whatserface to jail. Martha Stewart? Martha Stewart. That was that judge who'd sent it. That was, that was this person's wife. She's a, um, I think she was a federal judge. She had sentenced Martha Stewart to jail. And of course, not at the time we saw them dancing at, at Grossinger's. But when I was a sophomore in college, and I really dreamed what I really wanted to be. There was this job that I wanted more than anything, a student government job, but I wanted more than anything. It was, the co- it was called the coordinator. This was at NYU. It was called the coordinator of all square orientation. It was mm-hmm. the big honcho guy who got to introduce the entire incoming freshman class to the university. And you got to run Part of the job was you ran this group called the Violet Owls. And the Violet Owls the were... The Violet Owls. Violet Owls. The, the, the Violet Owls, they were the, like the a little orientation mentors for the freshmen. But this was such a politically sensitive job because at that time, 1962, at that time, these political jobs were all run by fraternities. This was right. a very heavy fraternity campus. And so the fraternities, the political parties, were always jockeying for position in the student government to see who would run what. And so um, when I was a sophomore, I was president of my class and on the fencing varsity, starting varsity. And I had this premonition. I, I was lying in bed. I, I had come home for the weekend I was lying in bed, and I just had this vision, seriously, it was incredible, of a phone call that I got from my fraternity brother. This guy's name was Gene Cederbaum, who was the president of the All Square Student Congress, inviting me to appear before Congress because I was nominated for this job as the coordinator of All Square Orientation. And Mm -hmm. I actually went through the entire conversation in my mind. Mm -hmm. Well, lo and behold... Well, wait, but wait. You should tell people that Gene Cederbaum was an upperclassman, right? Yes, he was a senior uh, and Mm -hmm. on his way to law school. And and he was someone that you totally, utterly looked up to, right? Uh, We, we like, worshipped this guy. He was was my fraternity brother. Right, so when you're thinking about Gene Cederbaum, you're not thinking about the guy next door. You're thinking about a person you really hoped would notice your good qualities, right? Oh, right. And he was the head of the uh, this group, this political party, this 
this amalgamation, this coalition of fraternities, and I just wishing he would notice me, right? Oh, right. please notice me, please notice me. I'm just a lowly president of the sophomore class. Was he just, a fencer you know, as, uh, no, as well? No, no, okay. no. I was the only, I was the, there were only two, me- three members of the fencing team in that fraternity. And so I, 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 I had come home, it was like a, a Sunday evening, and there's my father, and he's holding the phone away from his ear. My, my father had this real weird feeling. My father was a really 19th century person. Loved telegrams, hated telephones. He kind of thought that if you put the phone to your ear, like an earwig would, call through, uh, or would crawl through or something. He was real, I, you know, and there's, there's nobody else in the house but the three of us. So there's no germ that's coming. There's no Ebola in the telephone. You don't have to worry about it. No, no, no. Hold it away from your ear. Of course, nobody could hear him when he spoke because he's holding the phone so far away. But listen, that's what he did. So he's holding it and, he, and he's like holding it out to me tentatively. And mm-hmm. the, there's this person on the phone who wants to talk to you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, wow, this is the blacklist. It's the FBI is calling. So I pick up the phone and it is exactly the phone call that I had imagined when I was lying in bed the week before, kind of drifting off, thinking that, and that was this phone call saying, Bill, we want you to come in uh, before the Yale Square Congress. There's a vote. You and your counterpart at the School of Commerce, I was in the College of Arts and Science, my counterpart, the sophomore class president, uh, who, by the way, has become one of the top executives at Barnes & Noble, your um, Mm -hmm. Your counterpart, what, what, is, what was his name? Bruce, uh, Bruce Berger, your, your counterpart. And so there was a, a, actually a political crunch. There was a counterpart, and we were all whipping votes on council for who would be the orientation. How many, people did you have, how many people did you have to whip? I won by a vote, ah! a single vote. And, well, how many and, people did you have to whip in how short a time? Oh, it was literally, it was, the, it was all day Monday. I mean, we're, we're, we're running out of class, going to the student center, pigeonholing people, going to the halls. Come on, who are you voting for? Let, and you're promising everything, like you're promising new cars, you're promising dinner. Yeah. Well, now um, listen, can- listen, since tonight's show has three, count them, three raconteurs, yourself, Rick Lertzman, and Richard Grossinger, um, okay, three fabulous uh, things here. I wanted to point out to the folks that since you're all going to be going back to your past, we're all going to be talking, I'm not going to be talking, but we're all going to be talking about who we are and how we got to be who we are. Okay. So therefore, Richard Grossinger, I don't know where Rick Lertzman went to college, but Grossinger graduated from Amherst in June 66, just the same as you guys did. I, I don't think Lertzman is the same age, but he might no. be. Rick is about ten years younger, but um, okay, Rick. But, but wait, at, but, no, no. Rick was at USC. He was a okay. Film so, okay, so we have a USA a film. Okay, and Grossinger is from Amherst. Amherst. Amherst in '66 with a BA in English, and mm-hmm. that same month he married his wife Lindy Huff. I think you might pronounce it H O U G H. And she was from Smith. Okay, so now okay. how do how does an Amherst Smith gr- uh, group of thinking or people and couple or whatever. How does he? How do they? How do those guys relate to NYU people at School of Commerce or the law school? I mean, in other words, what kind of clash can we expect tonight? Because I'm looking at everything Richard Grossinger did in his life so far, and I see a path 
that was a fork in the road, and he took one side and his wife, and they started from a, a literary magazine called EO or IO, and I went the other way, like the more commercial way, and mm-hmm. I and so did you, and so did you, right? You you didn't have a big choice with NYU, so you get, so you get. Uh, no, well, my choice was going was law school. <clears throat> And uh, graduate school, but the cedar so bomb, but the cedar bomb moment is a pivotal point, and we are getting married and deciding when to get married. It was all very worrisome. You know, you try to do the right thing at the right time. So we ended up getting married, our second marriage, each of us, on leap year day, February 29th. Right, because it's the one day that didn't have any baggage. Right, and so remember we were talking about it in the car. We awesome. said, "What is the one <laughs> day <laughs> where there's no other? You know, n- nothing can crash into it." But this was, it was also- Bill's great idea. But here's the thing: that's uh, actually pretty smart. This yeah, it was Bill, and, and that's how we ended up getting married because we were both too afraid. We'd been living together at this point for four or five years now, and we were scared to do it because we both had failed, and so we didn't want to bring more failure. And so we picked this day, and Bill thought it up almost. You know, February first, he realized it, and so we had to hustle and get a wedding together. And the only possible place that had anything open for that weekend, you know, uh, February 29th, was Grossinger's, and they had a crossword puzzle convention. Oh, yes, a New York Times crossword puzzle convention. And I thought this could be it. You know, it's a completely impromptu marriage. We ended up having a big party in September of that year or October of that year, um, and where we invited family and stuff and kind of redid it. But for now, this was the real marriage in front of a. Um, what was the religion? Bill's Jewish. I'm Catholic. What was the religion? Unitarian. It was. It was a. It, it, it was. It was a compromise. It was Unitarian. Unitarian, and we wrote our own vows, and they gave us construction paper to, uh, you know, everything printed on construction paper because this is like <laughs> nice. new age, and we we. Right. we we wrote vows about the sockeyed salmon uh, going up the river or something. I don't remember what we – because we didn't want to do I do I, I the obey. And by the way, the greatest wedding scene in all of uh, movies is not, as you would think, in The Princess Bride when they talk about Malwage. But instead, a movie, an old-time movie with uh, Burt Reynolds and I believe Goldie Hawn. Goldie Hawn, right. And it's called, it best, called best Friends. Best, right, best, best Friends. friends. And in this movie, they decide to get married suddenly. And the guy who marries them is this really tall guy who was our modern day Lon Chaney. He was. Yeah, he, he always, yeah, he's been a character actor. He was on Star he, yeah. Trek. He's been everywhere. You know, he's always the guy with the, the sunken eyes, the real tall, mm-hmm. almost, you know, Frankenstein looking guy. And he played, in this case, okay. he was. You know who I'm talking about? The really. He, he, he might have played Lurch in the TV no, no, series. No, no, he wasn't no? Lurch. Lurch. I know Lurch. Not, yeah, it's not Lurch. Okay. Okay. But this guy, this guy would play villains always. He'd have the, and the minute you see him, but he did die. He was like, young. he was a character. He was a character actor. But he's a big yes, giant. He was, he was, he was a big Star giant. Star Trek. Um, I can look him up right now, but I don't want to fuss with Well, you know, when someone really is a giant, they don't live forever, and that's this guy was beloved. That's sad but true. Yeah. Exactly, and Roddy yeah. Roddy Piper just died. Yeah, Roddy Piper uh, died. Yeah, but he wasn't that he wasn't that big, Roddy Piper. No, but he was beaten yeah. up. He was really beaten oh, up. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That that scene. <laughs> He's never recovered from that scene. But anyway, um so the crossword puzzle uh, so anyway, so um so Richard Grossinger kind of represents in our life doing the right thing at the right time because going to that crossword puzzle convention at Grossinger is kind of like it kind of like created the and I still have the picture of us oh I should put it online of us that they gave us in a little charm oh I have to talk about this with Richard it's a little thing you look into 
it's a little plastic thing, and the picture is a tiny little slide that you would have would you do in some kind and of. And you have to hold it up to the light. And it, it magnifies it somewhat, and you can see it as if it's in a little chart. You see what it I'm saying? It is a real. It is actually this thing is a real 1950s trinket. They would give yeah. these. I'm serious. They would give these out at the Statue of Liberty. They would yeah. give these out at the Angel, Empire State Building. Do you have any building. idea what we're talking about? Any idea? No clue. None. Okay. Have you ever heard of Viewfind Viewmaster? Well, uh, but that was no. a stereo thing. That's yeah, but it was the same principle. It's it's where you get a little tiny, very crisp, beautiful slide, but you have some enlargement mechanism before it gets to your eyeballs. You look into something, and it blo- and it's a lens that blows up the tiny little slide. But the tiny little slide is near perfection. It's a high res. Okay, it's super high res. That's the beauty part. Hmm. So you look at and. No idea. and old-timey stereopticons were things that you would put in front of your eyes. In other words, people have been trying to make images easier to see forever. The minute we made images, we, you know, um, even as far back as the uh, caves, they used to light fires in front of the, um, the cave drawings and then it looked like the horses were galloping because it was just like a cartoon, you know. The, the horses are drawn on top of each other as if they're in mm-hmm. motion. Anyway, long, long, long. Anyway, so we're there. We're there at Grossinger's. <laughs> it's 1980. There's a crossword convention. And for some reason, Grossinger's has been a magic word in our heads forever since. So when I heard Grossinger was related and the same person, I endeavored to get him on our show. Well, the point of why that was also important was so here we are. It's our anniversary. This was like a last minute thing because we picked the date. Um, and there, dancing in the dining room ballroom at Grossinger's was the very person who had plucked me out of obscurity as a, as a sophomore class president to be one of the top offices on campus as a sophomore. Right. right. And James so since Peterbaum, that was, a, right? yeah, yeah. And that was such a big thing to me. But here's the and thing. I was like, whoa, yeah. there he is. And he was a practicing attorney at this point. And his wife, I believe she had just become a federal judge. And it was like, he barely recognized me. But I was like, your hair was myself. going, your hair was going at this point. Right. And I just made a big fool of myself. But nevertheless, and I tried I to. Pain. I tried to I tried to stumble over why this was a monumental event, and like he looked at me like Prince Charles would look at somebody from some obscure third world country. Uh, um, I'm sure I helped. I'm sure I I, I helped make it better. And, and the cool thing is, um, of all of this, and I forgot it. Yeah, never mind. Don't ever let me do this again. <laughs> I'm reading as I'm talking. And uh, good job. Yeah. Okay. So, but but but. Gene Cedarbaum, uh, Grossinger's, I can't remember. There's something tying this whole thing together. So it was, so it was really monumental. Was so as we're do- no, <laughs> so as we're doing the Dr. Feelgood book, right. part, of, a part of, oh, and the other small piece of the puzzle is that my cousin was one of the presidents of the Eddie Fisher fan club. Okay, but wait. All I wanted to say was Bill and I did not live anywhere near Grossinger's whatsoever. We were several states away. We lived in Princeton. Well, that's a state or two away. Well, north of Princeton in New Jersey. We didn't live in Pennsylvania. We didn't live in New York. We had to go all the way to upstate New York. So running into this guy, Gene Cedarbaum, and I was going to – that's what I was trying to ask. I don't know where he came from to get to Grossinger's. 
But Grove Singers is not an easy place to get to. It's in the mountains, the Catskill it's, Mountains. It's very easy to get to. You just take Route 17. Well, it's I mean, that's where, I mean, Route 17, with, um, back in the so 1950s. What are the odds that you and this guy from your past and we would all be there that particular weekend at the Crossword Convention? Right. I, I don't know. The odds are incredible. They're phenomenal. But, yes. Yeah, they are. It's that a small point. world, Nancy. It's a small but the world. Thing yeah, but about- it's the whole thing, but I wouldn't want to paint it. <laughs> That's Stephen Wright. Mm-hmm. Um, I got that from Belgab today. It's a small world, but I wouldn't want to paint it. Somebody right. somebody sent me that for some Anyway, it, uh, Stephen Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. The comedian. Okay, the comedian. Oh, the he's guy the guy on the couch. He's the only person that Louis C.K. will work with. I was getting all this from some Belgab thread. Um, interesting. Louis C.K. is awesome, by the way. Yeah, and he's the only person to work with is Stephen Wright, which surprises me. But Stephen Wright is famous for saying it's a it's a small world, but I wouldn't have to paint it. <laughs> well, Stephen no, Wright played yeah. St- Stephen <laughs> Wright played the guy on the couch in John Stewart's first movie. Oh, did he? Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. remember that. Yeah, what's John yep. Stewart's line in that movie? Have you weed. tried? Wow. Have you tried it on weed? weed. Oh, it's. Uh, have you? Well, tried- that's 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 from Half Baked. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that wasn't really. That wasn't John Stewart's first movie. John Stewart was in that movie. That was actually with Dave Chappelle and um, right. a couple right. other guys. But oh. it was Dave Chappelle's big movie. That's what I'm thinking of. That's right, what I'm right. thinking of. Yeah. Yeah, and what was the, Love that movie. Baked. And what was and John Stewart's line was something like, "Have you? But have you tried? Have you tried it on? Have you tried it on weed?" Poor thing. What a way to go. What a way to have a line attached to you. Yeah, Half-Baked. I loved Half-Baked, but you know, I always come upon it, um, you know, halfway through it. Half-Baked? No, no. It's so easy to say. That's a knee slapper, folks. I know, but it's not true. And it's, I always come upon it already playing halfway through, one third of the way through, and I never realized it's the same movie. It's a very odd movie. It's not one where they go. It's very strange. What's the one where they go to Harvard? Um, they grind oh no! Oh friend. no! That's that's a whole right. That's a whole different one. Do you yes. know that one, Angel? Where they grind? Their friend flies out of the window and burns on the way down before getting hit by a bus, and they grind him up into ashes. And he's the greatest weed pot maker ever. And so they smoke him, and they become super smart and go to Harvard. And that's not fake. It's a whole nother high. No, age no, that's a different. That's uh, how high? How high? How high? How high? Okay. Yeah, that's what it is. How high? With Method Man. Uh, which one's Method Man? He's from the Wu-Tang Clan, and the Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to, you know, with people out there now. What do you mean? Why? It's a, it, it's a rap group. You never heard of the Wu-Tang Clan? I well, never you, heard of them. And what did you say about wow. them? Wow. They're nothing. They're, yeah, they're, their slogan is the Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to F with. You know what the F stands for. Okay. F. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yes, but, what, but why is that their slogan? I mean, are they a rap group? Mm-hmm. Or- we, oh, man, the Wu-Tang Clan is actually one of the most famous rap groups in the world. It, probably in the history of music and hip-hop. They sold I'm making, of I'm making a very chagrined face, at least. <laughs> I, I really am. Well, Wu-Tang came out in 1994, 95 around there. They put out the first record around that, that time. It was a huge hit. They had a song called Cream, which stands for Cash Rules Everything Around Me. And that was a huge hit in the 90s. Uh, they were really big. In fact, a lot of them have gone on to have solo careers and sold millions of records as solo artists. They always come back and they do, you know, 
you know, records together. And there was a very famous, <clears throat> I'll tell you something equally obscure to you as that was to me. There was uh-huh. a very famous uh, album called Cream by Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. And it's very famous for having a lady naked except for whipped cream on herself. Nice. And it's a very famous album cover because of, it was called Cream, um, just saying. And there was also a group called Cream, which I don't, know that they're any good. I can't remember. And, well, there was also, and there was also the Prince song, Kareem. Yeah, there was. There was? Uh, by the way, Method Man, who's one of the main rappers from the Wu-Tang Clan, has become a very like successful actor now. He's actually in the uh, recent uh, released uh, train wreck with Amy Schumer. I he's, didn't he's see played. that yet. Um, is it's a train wreck. Right. Terrible. Is Method Man in the movie that we were just talking about called Higher, How High? Or yes, it, that, that's him and another rapper called Redman. They're like really close friends. They, they've done records together. Redman okay. is not really part of the Wu-Tang Clan, but he hangs out with them a lot. Well, do of. you understand that in the same way that we're talking now, the question about Amherst versus, say, NYU or UCLA? UCLA uh-huh. or Columbia. UCA? USC. USA. Uh, these are really important questions to people of our generation because we were defined by those things, I think. I was defined by the Wu-Tang Clan. I, I will were admit you? that, yes. Wow. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you what. Here's, here's a funny story. Uh, my the last year of high school, the, the, one of the records came out, one of their first records came out, and me and like four of my friends skipped school that day to go buy the record at a, at a mall. Nice. Because nice. it was the Wu-Tang. We were like huge fans. We were like well, what big, does Wu-Tang mean, do you say? They actually the reason they call themselves the Wu Tang Clan is because they're they're named after an old Chinese movie about the Wu Tang. It's an old Chinese martial arts movie. That's right. And they, yeah, they all take that was um, a movie like, that I actually saw. Believe it or not, that's a great Chinese karate movie. Right. And they all take like personas from those movies. Ah. Like they have the old dirty bastard ODB is one of the members who's actually passed away. Rest in peace. Ah. He, well, his you know personas what? like that old dirty do they, bastard. Um, do they Fubai. all sort of adopt the same mentality as the original movie perhaps suggested of warriors and stuff like that? That's what they are, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. a lot of their well, music is very military-minded, and it's okay, really, so now, really good music. So listen to our guest. I mean, our guest has studied all this really weird stuff, which I've put onto the webpage. He would For probably example, love the Wu-Tang Clan. He'd probably love them. Yeah. The other, but let me give you another But he studied stream. all that stuff, you know, like... Let me give you yeah. another strange stream. Let me add another stream to that. And right. so John Liebert went to Amherst. And somebody else who went to Amherst was David Eisenhower. So one of the things that I'm curious about, well, Liebert was at Amherst well before Richard Grossinger. He was there about five years before Richard Grossinger. But I'm wondering when David Eisenhower was there because he's also our age. And the thing about it is I am desperate to find out from Julie Nixon Eisenhower if her father – ever told her the story that Marilyn Taylor Gleason told us. Ah, ah, that, that reminds Jackie me. Jackie Gleason told her. But wait, I've got a, I've got a good connection for you. Uh, mm. Some of the, another person on Belgab can kind of put us in touch. Long story, and I will tell you after the show, but I think we're, we were going to get an interview with the remaining Gleason wife, I think, who is still alive. Marilyn Taylor. Yes. Marilyn Taylor. Well, Rick knows would you, her. Marilyn, would, you like, would you like an interview? I would love that. I would love that because Marilyn Taylor was – remember where Jackie Gleason always had the June Taylor dancers on? Well, right. Marilyn Taylor was June Taylor's sister. Ah. Was she a dancer also? Yeah. And so she tells the story that Jackie told her 
about how it actually changed his life. And right. so what I would love to do uh, – We have to talk to uh, her. My dream, my dream segment is Marilyn Taylor and mm-hmm. Julie Nixon. Mm-hmm. Nice. nice. <laughs> yeah. And for Angel, the June Taylor Dancers was the TV version of the Ziegfeld Follies. You know in the old-timey movies where the ladies are all dancing with fans and it's all very fancy? Uh-huh. Black and white. Yep. Well, June Taylor dancers were the same thing, and they would always have the camera way high up, and all their legs are flying into designs and stuff. That right. was, it's the, it was oh yeah, I know of, that. It yeah. was yeah. because of Busby Berkeley. Busby right. Berkeley invented those camera angles for that choreography. Look at a movie like Babes in Arms. Look at the um, look at a lot of the Mickey Zigzag Rooney, Mickey Rooney, Mickey Rooney. No, oh no, my no. God! No, look at Mickey really. Rooney is Hollywood, Nancy. Mickey Rooney yeah. is Hollywood. And you know what? Bill has. I mean, this is the manuscript that will not get itself corrected. Bill and Rick Lertzman have been cursing and cursing and cursing every day, every hour, because they've had to go through it again. There are just different copy editors. They're they're taking so much care with this. And again, Richard Gross. They better not curse on the air here because you know we don't allow that. No, no. But I'm telling you, none of that here. No. Bad okay. words, bad words, and much fist shaking. So we have to get a new machine soon because Bill's been pounding again. So, Ouch. Rick and Rick and, and yeah. So yeah. So tonight's in a, a special little moment where Rick and Bill won't be cursing. They'll be talking to an interesting person. Well, we're oh. talking about Max Jacobson because the oh. whole point yeah. Well, of it, and and, 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 if and that's the and that's the and and that's the television series. Uh-huh. I did my seg. I did my segment uh, about ten days ago. The Friday Before Last what was, is the, what is the, was what my is the seri- What is the series again? That was a good movie, too, Friday Before Last. Go ahead. It was oh. on – it's on Reels Television. It's coming out in January, and it's Dr. Feelgood is the television series. Really? Especially, yeah. It's, uh, one, it's not a series. It's just a one show, right? No, no, no. It's uh, – well, it may be one episode. It may be more. I mean, I did, I did my segment on JFK, the assassination – Max Jacobson, Mary Meyer, all that stuff um, a couple of weeks ago. And Rick is doing the uh, Hollywood section of it in, in Hollywood, I think, next week or the week after. And that's on the whole Bob Cummings story. So you might be different segments the way they do. You film for Ancient Aliens for two days in a row. And right. It might it. be like Ancient Aliens, okay. same thing. So okay. we'll see. But, yeah, we'll see who the stars are. They're going to be in this because I know that. I know Dwayne Hickman said he 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 didn't want to do it. He wasn't feeling up to it. Um, and how how and old is Dwayne right now? How old? Dwayne's in his eighties now. Dwayne's in his eighties, and um, he uh, yeah. he didn't want to do it. But I don't know if they got Julie Newmar because Julie Newmar, Ooh. Bob That's Cummings, yeah. Well, you know who she is, right? Of course, yeah. Yeah, well, she inspired she inspired drag queens for. Yeah, generations. Exactly. That's exactly. Right. That's Julie right. Newmar. Uh, Julie That's Newmar. Right. I remember that movie was horrible. The uh, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar with uh, Wesley Snipes. I think was in that. Yeah, I love that I movie. That was yeah. a good yeah. movie. Yeah, but wasn't a bad Priscilla, movie. Priscilla, Queen of the Jungle was. That's the one. New Queen That's of the Jungle. The Queen of the Desert. Queen of the Desert. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, jungle was about right though. Yeah, but the thing with Julie Newmar was that um, she was in a television series with uh, Bob Cummings called My Living Doll. This was back in the middle '60s. And Cummings was trying to get Julie Newmar hooked on methamphetamine. So he, he, he pulls out this big needle and says to Julie Newmar, here, I'll give you a shot. You should try this. And, she's go- and he gives him a, himself a shot 
because one of the things Max Jacobson did was he would give vials and syringes to his patients and they would self-inject right into his ankle. And Julie Newmore, we, we spoke Ouch. to her. Right, spoke to her. She said, you could see the transformation as that drug hit his system. And wow. we were at the bottom of the hour. So let us take our break. Uh, we'll be back with our guests, uh, Richard Grossinger and Rick Lertzman. Uh, right after this, we are your co-hosts, Bill, that, Bill and Nancy Burns on Future Theater Live on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio. And we will be back after these helpful messages. No longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with Key Information Solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let Key Information Solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now. 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. This is James Swagger, host of Capricorn Radio. I'm also an author, engineer, and researcher. Capricorn Radio covers alternative history, alternative science, philosophy, and truth oriented discussions. We are proud to be on the Dark Matter Radio Network live at 8 p.m. Saturdays, Eastern Standard Time. You can catch extra info on darkmatterradio.net, jameswagger.com for yours truly, and capricornmembers.com for the archives. Don't forget, truth is not democratic, truth is truth. UFO phenomenon either we like it or not is already very much part of our reality. I've been on panels with uh, military people who you know claim that they've seen the aliens buzzing our missile silos. They have very large eyes and you know I found their stare extremely difficult to bear. This is Martin Willis, the host of Podcast UFO, and we are here on the Dark Matter Radio Network every Wednesday from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It is my commitment to bring you an entertaining weekly show that takes a hard look at the UFO phenomena. Are they extraterrestrial? Well, are they interdimensional? Are they time travelers or something we have not even thought of yet? We explore these questions with interesting guests and witnesses from all around the globe. In addition, we bring you weekly UFO news with Open Minds TV, Alejandro Rojas. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep your eyes to the sky.
everybody, and we're back on Future Theater Live with our guest Richard Grossinger and Rick Lertzman, and we're happy to be here. So thanks, guys, for joining us. There's a lot to talk about tonight, a lot of memories we will dredge up. So, um, again, thank you. This is great. I'm so happy. Um, so, so, uh, so Richard Grossinger, when I saw your name, well, first of all, it's the one question that I asked you when I saw that you had gone to Amherst, I was really curious as to whether, um, David Eisenhower was at Amherst when you were there. I know you graduated the same year I did, but, uh, but not at Amherst, but, um, uh, uh, whether you knew him from, from, from college. He was a little bit after me. I, I read about him being there after I was gone. Yeah, I, I'm desperately trying to, uh, trying to reach him, more to reach uh, Julie Nixon, his wife, uh, just to ask about the Jackie Gleason story, which is what I'm fascinated with. And of course, Rick is here, and he knows about the Marilyn Taylor story that Jackie Gleason told her um, about Richard Nixon showing him an alien body at Homestead Air Force Base. Very famous story. And that was confirmed, by the way, that was confirmed to me, or at least um, the one person who knew Jackie Gleason very well, Jackie Gleason's last movie was with, um, and Rick will give me the title in a second, Tom Hanks. And supposedly the the head of Sony... Stepfather? I think it was Stepfather. Nothing in common. Nothing in common. That was the movie. Nothing in common. And so uh, the guy who was the head of Sony Entertainment, Sony Pictures, was this guy, Jeff Sagansky, who uh, had been the head of CBS. And Sagansky was knew Jackie Gleason because he's the one I think he might have greenlighted that picture, nothing in common. And Jackie Gleason was telling everybody on the set the same thing he wrote in his autobiography and the same thing that he told his, his, his second wife, Barbara, and Marilyn Taylor about his experience seeing this alien. And, I, and I, I've got this fascination that did Julie Nixon's father ever tell her <clears throat> taking Jackie Gleason to Homestead Air Force Base to see this extraterrestrial? Um, Big question. And then the question is, was it a real extraterrestrial or was it like, um, you know, a kind of... Um, False flag kind of extraterrestrial. A psyop, yes. perhaps? Yeah. Was yeah, it a race and telly dummy? Is that it? Yeah. Because you know, we never, you know, there's a trick within a trick within a trick, and we, we never okay. know kind of where it stops. Uh, it's a kind of pedantic question, but I'm always curious if there are real alien bodies either there or somewhere else. I'm just curious how they got here. Um, mm-hmm. given that ordinary transport, even at the speed of light, which wouldn't be ordinary, is much too slow to get anybody here from another star system. Mm, but not, so, another dim- not another dimension. Or did they actually they come here or another- have they been here? What? Have they been here? That was always but my they get here. If they came from another dimension, whatever that means, they wouldn't mm-hmm. be physical. 
Maybe they have the option of switching their vibrations down into our vibration, or what if they come from the center of the earth? Or, you know, some race went in when the dragons went in. Here's here's the thing. We're thinking of this uh, a little bit too much uh, like human beings. We're talking about extraterrestrials who might have a technology that to us might look like magic, which traveling the stars at that vast distance might be in a split second. We can't really determine what their technology is like. It's alien. There's but no I want to ask. To but I want to ask oh, Richard. So, but I want to ask Richard. Why was it a pedantic question? That's going to trouble me all night. Okay. <laughs> well, it was for the reason that um, that who that that last comment. I I don't have your names completely, but that that last comment changed it from pedantic to sublime. I just <laughs> meant it was a very kind of nuts and bolts question. Um, if we presume three dimensions, laws of thermodynamics. Um, the pedantic mm, question right. is, well, how did they navigate that? And the non-pedantic answer is they came from another dimension. Or, you know, what do we know about alien science? Um, it could mm. be so far beyond what we know that it just goes right around the speed of light. Well, that's well, very that, el- elegant, that- very elegantly put. Mm-hmm. Well, the son, the, uh, the son of the person who uh, developed the Learjet, John Lear, uh, expounds on this. He lives in Las Vegas, and he said that from what he knows from people who have worked at Area 51 on this technology, that they don't travel through space and time. They have a mechanism it's kind of like um, a matter-antimatter, but it's not antimatter. It's not at all like mm-hmm. that. But they have a mechanism in which they draw space and time through them. And the only weird thing, and the only weird thing about that, and I, 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 that it doesn't corroborate anything. But for every time when we were doing the show UFO Hunters, we would talk to people who'd witnessed these huge triangles flying overhead, as Art Bell did. I mean, he was one of the witnesses to that um, at a theater, at a drive-in movie. One of the things that, that they said was that all the electric motors and the gasoline engines and radios just stop. And then in terms of car engines, this was so fascinating – when the object floats past overhead, the engines start. And anybody who knows a gasoline engine knows that they don't just start if they've been cut off. If the ignition has stopped and the engine shuts down, you have to start the engine. So why would the engines automatically start up again after the object passes overhead? So my theory was that the engines never really shut down. What happens is that time itself so slows down that you're actually between the piece, the, uh, the moments of ignition in the engine. You, you're actually between the electrons because time has stopped. But it could also and speed up. And then it up. starts up but again. It, but it could also, instead of slowing down or stopping, it could also speed up. If you've ever been in a convertible and you try to run through the rain, if you go fast enough, you won't get hit by rain. Uh, once right, you start to slow down, thing. then, if, you know, and if you're lucky enough to have been dating and have boyfriends and things with convertibles, you just have to trust that they're never going to let you get your hair wet. And you learn that you have to go faster than the raindrops. So that would s- seem to be the same thing, perhaps. 
Actually. Ah, dead silence. I love it. Okay, so yeah, I am so, reminded of it on the ring. Uh, I'm reminded of the um sort of wonderful moment in that movie K Pax. You remember that Kevin Spacey movie? In yeah, in which um Prode is demonstrating to scientists um how he uh travels. And um they say, well, can you show us how you get move faster than the speed of light? And he goes, okay, I did it. Yeah, 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 yeah. They say, well, you know, you may remember the scene. And he says, well, I, I went and I came back. And so the scientists go, aha, very funny. Where we come from, that's known as the fastest gun in the West. And he goes, yeah, but I don't come from where you come from. Hmm. And that's... Yes. That's a yeah. kind of haunting line in, in Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's excellent. Yeah. And so what so what Rick and I are dying to know is Can can and I know what you're going to say and stuff, but can we also we, promise to get back to some of these topics after you guys have had your fun? Can we go back to some of this really I don't even know what the theme of the show is. Yeah, well, it's two themes. One is your heritage and and the name Grossinger. These two guys just want to have some fun and talk about the history of Grossingers. And um, then I want want to get back to the subjects that you publish when you're all done. So have fun. (laughs) Okay, no, what Rick and I were really anxious to know, and Rick can chime in any time, is were you living at Grossinger's back in the 1950s? Well, I wasn't living there. Um, my my mother left my father at the time I was born, so I was raised in New York City. And mm-hmm. as a child, I had my stepfather's last name. So I was Richard Towers as a child. And my stepfather had been my father, Paul Grossinger's best friend. And he okay. had run off with my mother and um, they were raising me as their child with my brother and sister. Um, and when I was nine, I won't go into the whole story. I have, you know, two memoir books in which I write about this. But I, fa- I got told um, that Paul Grossinger was my father. And I began actually at age, at age nine. And then I began to visit him. So from age nine on... I went to Grossinger's for fairly large chunks of time. Um, all my vacations from school and before and after summer camp. So age, as, no, age uh, what year is this when you're age 83, nine? 1953. Yeah, 53. So I guess I started in 53 and, um, and, lived, and lived there with the illusion that I was the first son of the first son of the founder. My name yeah. got changed when I was 12. And then when I was 30, my mother committed suicide, and it came out afterwards that she'd had me by an affair while she was at Grossinger's, and that I wasn't related to them by, by blood. Um, wow. And then that was a whole other search to find out who it was, and, and wow. he never would meet me. And but 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 wait! You're the but the Grossinger senior, the the man who was supposed to be your father, your second father. Uh, uh-huh. What did he say about all this? Did he dispute it? Well, for a, a, I, it was very hard to get anybody to talk about it. This was at the time it happened. This was a huge scandal that was immediately yeah. covered up by everyone. 
um, because of the prominence of Grossinger's, I guess, at the time mm -hmm. and the prominence of the families involved. So when I came along in, in the kind of stirred up environments of my mother's very dramatic suicide, um, she had jumped out her apartment window onto Park Avenue. Wow. And um, in the aftermath of that, I actually got told by my brother who had been in the mental hospital, my half-brother, and he later, not not till many years, he also committed suicide many years later. Wow. And, um, and I, um, I kind of took all of these stories together and, and put them into one of the memoir books called Out of Babylon. But mm -hmm. um, when I did ultimately confront my father with it, I confront is the wrong word. I, I try, he was not the kind of person who was easily engaged. Um, in my book, I cast, I, I play around with the movie and, and he's played by Jackie Gleason. But um, years well, later, I would change that to James Gandolfini. That's a much wow. more accurate match for him. And his attitude was, it was a little bit surprising. He said, well, I don't care. Paternity's more than blood and we'll never know the truth. And, and I wasn't going to let your mother get away with it, he said. So that was always curious. Well, get away with what? Since what he was stuck with was all the child support and bills and right, and what stuff. does that mean? Yeah, what I does think that, that mean? it was very, it was wrapped around the complexity of the hotel itself and the family and its identity. Um, getting, getting me born as his son. He was sterile. He couldn't have children, but he didn't let that out. So getting me born legally as his son was ah. was a big deal. And did your uh, mother know your mother knew all this, right? Well, yeah, she had to. She knew who she had <laughs> the affair with. Wow. And wow. So, yeah. How are we related to Jenny Grossinger? So she was my father's mother and you know, sadly, I only found all this out after my mother's suicide, so I could never ask her. But the story I get, one of the stories, is that Jenny was the one who encouraged her to um, conceive a child while she was still married to Paul so that it could be, that could be her grandchild. And um, she and, and my mother had rapport. And who do you think the father might be since, you I know, know, that's... My, I know who my genetic father is. Okay. Um, but... Um, this was, um, when I found this out, this was 1975. It took me about a year and a half to find out who he was. Um, had to really go and hunt down the associates of my mother of the era. Mm -hmm. uh, and was, was he of sound genetic stock, at least? <laughs> what, what does that mean? <laughs> they well, were, you, you, they another... why? Because you've got the suicides on the one side. Oh, yeah. And the sad Was he ever in a padded room? <laughs> no. Yeah, no. I, I, I think what, that what I, was I your think, what was your grandmother like, Jenny Grossinger? What were your impressions of her? Well, I had my own kind of relationship with her, and I think it was enhanced and mythologized by this um, the series of events leading to my conception and birth. She named me, and when I began to visit with her at age nine. Um, she kind of, I guess you could say, took me under her wing. I, I, 
or she didn't relate to the other grandchildren nearly as much. And she would tell me, you know, her stories and she would have me, she was studying. I don't know that she was studying for a degree, but she was studying to get educated. And I would sit with her with her grammar books and, and then she would read my school papers. And, and we had quite a, quite a good relationship. Not everybody did have a good relationship with her. And I kind of regretted that I, that I know, I mean, I sort of in my family regret everything about how I came to knowledge too late. I came to knowledge really about how worthwhile it would have been to have a kind of candid conversation with her about her life mm-hmm. too late. Um, mm-hmm. She died about a year or two before my mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like 28 at the time. I, I was involved in my own life, and I really, wow. I really didn't. Um, I, I was trying to get away from the family because it was pure mm-hmm. madness on every side, the Grossinger side as well as my mother's side. Wow. And, um, and the, but uh, luckily, but luckily, I bet that's why I'm asking about sound genetic stock. I don't care if your natural born father sits on the side of the road happily all all day long, as long as he's really healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, you have something to kind of look forward to. Well, I've struggled. Uh, I mean, I I consider the main achievement in my life sort of surviving the. Um, surviving what I inherited at the family and surviving the family itself. And I put everything else second. I, you you well, almost sound like a, um, a Salinger character from an actual reel coming off of J.D. Salinger's pages. You know, a, a kid who's born with certain kind of interesting, you know, eggs in the basket. Like yeah, one of the I, members writer, of the Glass family. As a writer, I'm not I'm not mainly a a fiction writer. I am a literary writer, but I don't write fiction. And the um, the memoir books that I've done that I'm now rewriting actually are, are are different from most of my work. Most of my work is closer to our earlier conversation. I mean, mm-hmm. I've written books on alternative medicine and astronomy mm-hmm. and cosmology and evolutionary well, theory. Sh- should your should your autobiography the memoirs be read in order or does it not matter it doesn't matter i make i i published the two of them in the 90s and and i just i didn't have the material really organized well enough uh-huh. so i put some of the wrong material in the wrong book nice and, nice that gives you a reason to do book three yeah it gives yeah. well and then the third one I never rewrote because it seemed too personal. But uh-huh. now I've just taken on this year's task to rewrite all three of them. Nice. So, so the original one, which is called New Moon, um, which I began writing when I was 16, right in the middle of it, and I, re- and I worked on it through college, that one will come out next year um, in an, as a revised version. And then I'll work on Out of Babylon, and then the third one, um, which was never published. Where so, did you ever get to know Milton Blackstone? Yeah, that, that's the first thing you emailed me. I never yes. liked Milton. Um, who is Milton Black? Who is Milton Blackstone? Well, Blackstone yeah, was kind of like yeah. the publicist who um, who sort of launched Grossinger's and my grandmother's rumored paramour. Um, 
I, I, that I can contribute nothing on except rumor. I always found him a kind of sour, sort of arrogant guy, um, very, very cold. Um, I, I understand about his genius. Are we still connected? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I understand. I understand about his genius in in helping to um, to kind of create the legend of the hotel. Um, my my experiences from him were with him were kind of hit and miss. Um, I what I remember the th- I, I guess three things jump out in my mind about him. Um, all of them are in one memoir book or another. One of them is when I was sent on a teen tour around the country after um, after high school, before college. And in L.A., he took me away from the teen tour and took me with Eddie Fisher Uh-oh. for the day. <laughs> and, we went, and we went to a, uh, an Angels game uh, at the uh, whatever they – maybe it was the L.A. Coliseum then – and I was the envy of everyone else in the group because I had met a real star. And Eddie even gave me, I think, $20. Um, wow. He said, take the girls out or something. <laughs> and typical of him. <laughs> and then the second thing I remember was um, after freshman year of college, the one summer I worked for my father, which was a disaster, um, at the hotel, um, I... I Having gone to an all-boys prep school and an all-boys summer camp, I was pretty behind on dating. And I dated for that summer a starlet that he brought and was trying to discover. And I met met her through him. Who was she? uh, Well, nobody who became anything. Her name was Helene Leibowitz. She was very Jewish and from Miami Beach. And he brought her there. And, And it was... But it was a big thing to me at the time. Uh, you know, your adolescent um, kind of romances are a big deal. And that was kind of like the first one. And then um, the following summer, I refused to work for my father. And he said I had to work. So I got a job at, at a newspaper in Sullivan, the Sullivan County Democrat. He said, you have to work for the one Democratic paper in the county. And yes. And um, and. The pay, and then my Milton Blackstone was testifying in Washington with my grandmother about an airport in Sullivan County. Ah, yes. And the newspapers saw the advantage of having me on the staff, so they sent me with them to report. And while the moment we arrived in Washington D.C., um, my gr- Milton got word that Harry, Jenny's estranged husband, had died suddenly of a heart attack and I had to turn around and come back with her accompany her back Milton sent me back with her in this little prop plane and in an event which I still I'll always believe was a psychic event the um the as the there was no weather report of rain but every time the plane tried to land at the Grossinger airport there were huge thunderstorm blocked it and we had to land in a field nearby. And it was kind of scary. And all the time, Jenny was sitting next to me in the plane, like transfixed, saying, he won't keep me out. I see him. He's trying to keep me out. He's trying to keep me from the hotel. 
And then when we landed, his chauffeur was there to pick her up. And the first thing she said to him was, you work for me now. And he said, no, ma'am. And he quit. He said, I quit. Wow. So that was the most dramatic story. It doesn't really involve Milton. Um, Did you ever want to go into the hotel business yourself, following your father's footsteps? Not really. Um, I, and I don't know if there was ever a moment when it was possible, because the the decline of the hotel really parallels my own time in college. And okay, now wait, wait, wait. Before it's declines, uh, can we? Can you tell us what the magic was? What this fellow Milton Black? How did he make Grossinger's become a thing? that everybody knew about. How did that happen? Well, the, I, I'm just reporting what all of us have access to because it precedes my lifetime. He invited um, stars there for free and then got newspaper reporters to report on it, and he got the equivalent of um, you know free publicity, um, what they later called buzz, and now I guess is like mm-hmm. internet okay. hits or something. He and and helped, how, how long? How, he helped, and, he helped back very quiet place and then how long did it take I don't think it was a quiet place I think it was thriving at a low level and he actually came as a basketball player as you may know yeah. uh, he um and then he was hired as my father's tutor my father as a child teenager and then um and then he and Jenny became very close and they got this idea, and, and he convinced Jenny that he knew how to take the hotel to a whole new level. And so she um, she got behind him, and it became um, the alienating factor between her and her husband. Were you aware um, of his drug problem at all? Um, uh, just, uh, just by the same way you are, but what I've read. Um, it wasn't something that was evident to me. Not that I was that astute at that age. Well, were you there when, um, you know, this kind of big event when Milton Blackstone, Eddie Fisher, I guess, had been the lifeguard there. He was working the pool. And were you there? No, that's before 1953. Okay. That's prior to 1953. I was there when, uh, when Eryn Fisher was having his tryst with Elizabeth Taylor. And, ah, that, okay. And I took a, I guess I must have been 12 or 13 or something, and I, I remember taking a photograph of them in a rowboat, and everybody's saying, oh, you should sell it to the newspaper. And wow. Stuff. Do you but still it have it? No. My mother no. threw out all my scrapbooks when I went to college. It was, it's wow. a bummer. It's something I've kind of regretted ever since that I didn't rescue those scrapbooks. She had no use for me. What was your impression of Eddie Fisher? I didn't. I, I didn't have much to much dealing with him. He he was self-involved, self-referential, self-involved, a narcissist. Um, I his uh, his brother was on the athletic staff there for years and was a really surly guy. Um, and I think he never could have had that job if he hadn't been Eddie's brother. I don't have much of an impression of him afterwards. In my book, I really borrow from my father's and stepfather's impressions of him. Um, my father and stepfather kind of reconciled and took my wife and my then um, teenage kids out to uh, lunch at the Russian Tea Room 
1987 in New York. Nice, nice, um, nice, nice. And that's a chapter in my book out of oh. that because I wrote down all their dialogue afterwards and they had a fantastic dialogue oh. about, Eddie, about Eddie Fisher. Um, wow, that was very smart to do that. You know, many people put a scene at least, not a chapter sometimes, but at least a good scene in a good movie or a good book. It, it's, I guess you just sort of maybe said this, this will be important someday. Well, it was, it was when I decided to start to write Out of Babylon because, um, because I had two books at that point that were separate. One was an attempted history of Grossinger's that an agent wanted me to write. And the other was... And, a, and it wasn't Lyle Stewart, I hope. No, it was John Brockman. Ah. Oh, John Brockman. And, ah. and, then, uh, and then I had the story of my brother's madness, which was called Johnny's Quest, that I began writing when he went into the mental hospital. And they were two totally different stories. Mm. And that lunch joined them together. And it was when ah. I cast... Um, Cast imaginarily Jackie Gleason as my father, and um, and but Peter what, what, what happened? cast as my stepfather. And what happened at the lunch to to, to cast them together? Well, uh, they. You mean what what caused the lunch? No, no, no. What you say the the lunch itself it, it all coalesced in your mind. It, yeah, because because these guys loved each other, and ah. my mother had come between them, and I left. Ah. I, I left with my my wife and kids and me left with my father in the taxi cab and he said you know when your mother ran off with him it was good riddance to her it was him i lost and, wow and that wow. was you know it was this was just coming through with such great dramatic scenes that wow. i how could i pass on that being a writer yeah. i mean i right. i went back and i i wrote down everything that i could remember well, from, well you've um uh, you've read you've read speak memory correct probably the nabokov mm-hmm. um, yes. a long time ago uh, it's hard to come by. Um, I was able to get another copy. I always used to give my copies away, but it is one of the best memoirs ever in the history of the planet. And you're, you know, and, and yeah, there you go. Might want to brush up. Mine are, mine are very good. They never, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next incarnation because, um, you know, I got really great blurbs. I got writers like Paul Auster and Jonathan Latham to write blurbs that raved about the books. But it's very hard to sell them. And I used our own press, which is really a nonfiction press. Well, um, yeah. yeah and, I, and I want to, before we lose all of our time, I want to make sure that we talk about how you and your wife started the press, first from the literary magazine, because... Yeah. This is important history, and as you know, you're only as good as your Wikipedia, and many times <laughs> you have to get in there, and you've, I'm still scanning, literally scanning all the reviews. I had, I think, for my first novel, the very best review I have ever read in my life from Publishers Weekly. It was so good that it was earth-shaking. I mean, the whole world stopped. <laughs> but it doesn't exist unless I scan it in and OCR it and put all the right. credentials there and get the Wikipedia to put me back. Otherwise, it's your 15 minutes. 
No, it's not even that. It, well, it's more, know, it's more to me, it's more in 1984. It's the Ministry of Truth. I mean, you have to work really hard to get yourself at least up there so other people would maybe collect that information and keep mm-hmm. putting it back in. If they, In other words, you've got to kind of find your tribe these days if you're a writer. And my mentor was a fellow named William Goyen, G-O-Y-E-N, and they recently did a nice retrospective. And... I'm I, I'm in his tribe, and I just feel like we mm. almost need to find each other in this digital world because the publishing houses, as Bill and Rick will just tell you, are going crazy right now. Uh, Simon and well, Schuster. It's a bit, you know, publishing the the whole technology and the economy and the culture have changed radically enough that publishing is not going to survive in the conventional sense. And our own press, which is a nonprofit that Lindy and I turned over to the staff, um, it, it, so it's still being run and it's still successful. But we're we're going to really have to work and redefine ourselves and stay on the cutting edge in order to survive, because the model, the economic model, is no longer mm-hmm. viable in an era of the internet and Amazon and um, well, that's I'll, a whole I'll give discussion. You, um, no, no, but let me just give you a hint because I've been on this journey. Um, I, I've done a daily newspaper. I was a reporter. I've done a, a monthly magazine. I was the editor and I've published with the top people in the world, so forth and so on. But um, Oh, my God. I'm, see, I hate when I get off on these long t- – oh, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, you have to learn programming. You ha- if, if you've been able to avoid it your whole life because other people did the typesetting, um, you have to go back and learn HTML5, and you have to do it and CSS3. You have to do it now because everything's being built on this platform, period. So that if you want to learn about how to do an app or you want to learn how to move into the future – with new ways of reading that isn't going to, it's not going to be a facsimile of a book with a facsimile of a page turning. It's going to be totally different. Learn those two things, HTML5 and CSS3. And it keeps you young because you're learning a whole new set of languages. So I suggest you do that. That's what I say. Anyway, the answer to the question was that um, we started the journal flukily um, as undergraduates at Amherst and Smith. Um, we the, there were a bunch of circumstances that led us to start a literary magazine, and then we got funding from Amherst College that enabled us to keep it going, and we took it with us to Ann Arbor when we went to graduate school, and then with the fourth issue, which we did on alchemy, it caught it caught into the counterculture, and suddenly we had a subscriber base, and. We continued to publish it from uh, Ann Arbor and then from Maine and then from Vermont. And in Vermont, our friend who was running the Vermont Arts Council um, offered to sponsor us on a grant. And we got, we, we got a few, but we gave it the name North Atlantic Books because that's where we had been. And we named it after a poem of Ed Dorn's North Atlantic Turbine. And then we got out a few books, got some grants, and when we moved to Berkeley in 77, we had a small literary press that I then expanded into a business. I'm condensing everything. I think primarily because I had a contract to write this book, Planet Medicine, for Doubleday, 
which was essentially an alternative medicine, ethnomedicine book. And I was meeting a lot of practitioners who weren't getting published. So I was doing alternative medicine and, um, and somatics or body work, whatever you want to call it, and martial arts very early on. And it formed the basis for a successful mind-body-spirit press that, that kind of took off in the 80s and 90s. And that's a very synopsized version of how the press developed. Um, so how did, you, how did you cross paths with Richard Hoagland? Um, because you published his book. Right. In 19, in, it must have been about 85. <laughs> I think maybe it was 86, because I remember it was the year the Mets won the World Series. And that, I, was 80, uh, that was 86. Yeah, because I, I know that my first meeting with Hoagland, uh, a Met game went into extra innings, and I was watching it. And so I canceled the meeting. And he and I remember Hoagland said, "Well, we know where where your um whatever your loyalty lies." Uh, he was pissed oh that off. was that uh, that was that great game in the playoffs. It was it was it was no like, no it was it wasn't the no that's not the greatest ball game ever played. It was it was probably the July fourth one. Oh okay, against the 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 Braves. Um, but anyway. I, I had pu just published the first edition of my book, The Night Sky, um, which had sections on UFOs and sections on Mars. And simultaneous to Hoagland discovering it, I read an article about him in the San Francisco Chronicle. So we kind of looked each other up simultaneously. And he was living in Oakland then. And I was living in Berkeley. We were really only a few blocks apart. And, um, and, you know, when we talked, actually, you had mentioned Simon and Schuster. That's who he had a book contract with. But they were clueless as to what he was doing. In fact, when they dropped the book, I always thought this was hilarious. The editor told them that, that surely there wasn't a face on Mars because when the astronauts went there, they would have seen it. And <laughs> there were so many errors of logic there and a fact that it was mind-boggling. But I picked up the book. Uh, Hoagland then kept his advance money and still wanted to write it. So I worked with him on it for a few years, and um, and we eventually got it out as the Monuments of Mars. And um, and he and I, as he himself will say, had an up and down relationship over the years since then. But we've kind of reconnected recently over Pluto because I was doing a Pluto anthology and Dick ended up writing a major piece for it and we brought it out this spring. And then I did a show, I co-hosted a show with him on this network. Um, yeah, I, during, I heard during, it. And you know what, Richard, everybody was saying? They were calling you the guy who sounds like John Malkovich. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You kind of do, yeah, a little bit. Huh. Don't feel I, bad, though. They I, say I, I sound like Seth Rogen, so it could be worse. I never heard that before, but yeah, <laughs> I did. And to show how much publishing has changed, I don't think we sold a single copy of the Pluto book um, from no. that whole six hours. It's very, very on that level, very disappointing. But that's also the way things are now. People don't think first of books; they think they think first of the internet. Hmm. Well, and and sure, your your website is. I all... mean, I've been told no, and and I've been told because I did a lot of books at Kensington back in the nineteen uh nineties, -huh. 
and because I was friends with Walter Zacharias, and um, I did about maybe eight books at and. Recently, when I was speaking to their editorial director, she basically said to me, well, you know, we're, we're out of nonfiction now. And I said, why? I mean, that was your whole stable of books back in the 19... I mean, mm-hmm. I did true crime for them in, in the 1990s. And she said, nobody... She said, the internet has destroyed the entire market for nonfiction true crime. Yeah. Just destroyed it. Yeah, we have had to move out of whole markets because of the internet. And the reason North Atlantic Books survives, I mean, I think you can guess, is that we're publishing cutting-edge topics Mm -hmm. before they become overly popular. And we seem to still be able to do that. So, Mm -hmm. um, And they're across a a framework that includes, um, now it's much more environmental and political for us, but it's still holistic health and nutrition mm-hmm. and herbs and martial arts and, and body work systems. And it's still a viable publishing uh, repertoire. But mm-hmm. overall, um, it's, um, overall it's, it's, it's a tough go. And we've had to drop many things that you could publish before. So to, and Kensington was a very successful commercial publisher. Right. I mean, it was Kensington that bought Carroll Publishing well, when um, Steve Schragas went bankrupt, where they were cousins. And um, so because I know that we did the, uh, the Dobie Gillis book at Carroll Publishing, and uh, that all went to Kensington back when they uh, when they bought them, and now Kensington has really changed. Uh, they're doing genre fiction. That's really basically all they're doing. Yeah, I think a lot of the companies will just give it up because there isn't really the audience anymore. Um, and you know, we'll continue it. We're a nonprofit. We did, we don't really have any other option. And and so far, so good. We've but got- um. Back in uh, Berkeley, there are 28 full-time employees. And you're only That's fabulous. But you're only publishing print. You're not publishing digital. Is that right? Oh, yeah. We are publishing e-books. Yeah, e-books oh. are about 20% of our market. Okay, well, that's good. And once you've, once you've got 20%, you can simply balance your two, you know, your two profit but, streams. But, but, but those two together are not going to be enough. It's going to take webinars and, um, and mm. other digital packaging and audio and, and mixed media. It's going to take yeah. all of those things yeah. to make um, publishing work now. I, I want to see if I can float you back to the 1950s again. Okay. Um, were you, um, had you heard the stories of, I mean, this is what really fascinated uh, uh, Rick and me. Had you heard the stories of, on the one hand, um, how Milton Blackstone um, whipped up the crowd at Grossinger's to, uh, when Eddie Cantor was there, to launch Eddie Fisher's singing career? That was one of the great. Myth- yeah, uh, mythologic- I mean, uh, I'm I only know that story the same way you know it, and I, you know, and I have little twists on it. My stepfather—that's my stepfather's era. There as master of right. ceremonies, and um, mm-hmm. and you know, there's not there's not a whole lot more information. I I think that um, I think that 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 it was a that you know the story is a myth that, that Eddie Cantor had already discovered him. And that they, 
they set up the the scene in order to get publicity. Uh, you know, they, right. <laughs> that's my understanding. From Richard, any, I, have a, I have a question. We, you know, during our research for Doctor Feelgood, we talked to one of our one of our friends. His name is Rocky Kalish, and he was a creator of uh, Gilligan's Island and a lot of TV shows over the years. And as a student at Columbia, he said that he used to pick up money at Grossinger's from Milton Blackstone and take it to uh, prison where Jimmy Blue Eyes, Jimmy Yellow, was. was. And uh, Rocky said that Grossinger's funneled a lot of, was funded a lot by, by mafia money. Did you ever hear those rumors? Not really. I, I The Concord more. Um, I think that... You know, would that Grossinger's had been that big time. Um, and um, and I run into this also, my genetic father's family, when I first heard about who they were, there were rumors that they were mafia connected. And I think that that turns out to be so much mythology also. Um, and the fact that for everybody in that era, um, the, the mafia uh, the Jewish mafia crossed their lives in various ways. I know that my father, speaking of the Mets, the earlier Mets of 1969, he placed a $1 bet um, with the mafia guy, guy who hung out there at the hotel who, who did the gambling. He placed a $1 bet that the Mets would win the World Series. I think he got 10,000 to one odds. And, uh, and he was so proud of that. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> one of the uh, uh, one of the story. Uh, uh, I mean, this character that Rick mentioned, uh, Jimmy Blue Eyes, was kind of very famous because he was an associate of Meyer Lansky, and he was kind of the accountant guy for Meyer Lansky, who spent time in jail. But here's what's so funny about him: in the uh, uh, his name was Vincent Alo or Alo, A L O, and in the Godfather. That character, Godfather 2, that character was called Johnny Ola. So it's Alo Ola. So he turns out to be a, a fictional character in Godfather 2. He's the guy that um, Freddie Corleone becomes friendly with. And then in the movie American Hustle, he's played by uh, Bobby De Niro um, hmm. as the Meyer Lansky associate down in Florida. And that's exactly where Vincent Alo wound up. But he was the guy who supposedly was funneling money into a whole bunch of nightclubs in New York, the store club and places like that in New York city in the 1950s. And one of, and he was friends with Milton Blackstone who was actually arranging loans for places like the Sullivan County airport, the Grossinger's airport and things like that. And another one of the people, who um, worked with Rocky Kalish, who became a writer, uh, was this person, Ernie Lehman. And Ernie Lehman wrote the script for the Burt Lancaster, Tony Curtis movie, The Sweet Smell of Success, where the Tony Curtis character, the publicity hustler Guy Falco, that was Milton Blackstone. Yeah. Well, that's all interesting. I mean, you're, you're, this is... This is like before, in a way, before my time. But um, I have it, it touches on fragments of stories that I got from mostly from my stepfather, which I put in the book. So that crisscrosses, uh, a, a, you know, a th 
with, uh, through things that I I know about and have written about, but it's not my main interest. You, you all have more interest in that than I do. I see. For me, it's it's part of my childhood and my life, and part of the strange kind of entanglements of my family. That uh, I mean, my getting born into this crazy bunch of people is something that I've had to untangle. And unfortunately, for this kind of discussion, that that's where my interest is in in the story. Yeah, I'm peripherally interested in aspects of the hotel, and I have some inside information and and a lot of um, a lot of stories that we don't have time to you know to kind of um, detour out into. But um, that- well, I wonder if I could sort of talk a little bit about the topics that you publish, but more importantly, um, when was the first time you went away from, let's say, conventional religion or however you were raised and said, there's more to this Western life than I've been told? Do you remember when you first looked um, something up? Or I, I feel as though that was, that, that, that was something that was with me from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. But... Um, uh, in some ways, the original, the first memoir book is about that transition, um, and and how its roots are are in the horror of the family because it was a terrifying family. My mother's madness was mm-hmm. terrifying, and I, it 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 created an occult framework for me. The only way you could save yourself in that family, I, I the, the my brother and I talked about it later. Um, we, she was more than just um, a neurotic Jewish woman. She was like a dark shaman. And so we needed a shamanism to counter her. And I feel when as did you, when did you figure When did you figure that out? Well, that was Every- a language that we got by the time we were in college. But mm-hmm. without the language, we, we were, that was what we were doing before we had language for it. I generally date my my breakthrough in this to around to to high school i went to mm-hmm. horace mann in new york and the tarot deck which oh. um, we got involved with about midway through high school and my friend chuck stein began interpreting the tarot and using the tarot as a as a tool for mystical study and for understanding of the unseen world and I had been in psychoanalysis all through childhood and adolescence, so I had this Freudian background and this understanding of symbolism. Mm-hmm. And when I got given the tarot, I um, I just kind of that that became the opening. And then later, wow. later Jung and and in the years in 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 Berkeley, I did a number of very long and intense studies one of them being cranial sacral therapy and energy healing in general, and the other being a psychic study. To I went to the Berkeley Psychic Institute and began a practice, began to develop a practice from that. But, and, 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 and you call it in your bio a psychic kindergarten, and that's pretty recent. This is the Berkeley Psychic Institute. Yeah. And, and and what um, it, do you have to do it for a certain amount I, of years? I after I, I was there oh eight oh nine, and then I began studying with a graduate of there named John Friedlander, 
who is just much more spiritual. Um, that was kind of, I don't know, that was a bit like Scientology. It was a bit cult-like. Well, and, and why is why is John Friedlander have Sethian in front of his name? What does that mean? Is the, is that a, was, is that a group? Well, after the Berkeley Psychic Institute, he was one of the people with Jane Roberts when she channeled okay. Seth, and okay. he just continued to have a relationship. I don't know if it's with Seth per se, but Seth is a very complex entity. He's not like mm -hmm. a single person, and the the this kind of floating higher intelligence, this multi-personal, most uh, multi-personhood, um, extra, you know, dimensional intelligence, which came through Jane Roberts, um, John is now channeling in his own way, and he's a former, he, as well as Berkeley Psychic Institute and Jane Roberts, he's done a lot of Buddhist study, and he has a law degree from Harvard and practiced as an attorney for many years before he became a full-time psychic. I think he's he's the top of the line at the moment. I think he mm. he's as good as you can get. And that there there isn't. Um, I mean, in in Buddhism and Buddhist studies there and Sufi and Hindu. There are a lot of advanced teachers, but it's hard to find an advanced Western teacher mm -hmm. um, who really is in the theosophical tradition and has a Sethian approach and has the tools of the Berkeley Psychic Institute. So I've gotten a tremendous amount out of studying with John, and there's a book of mine called Dark Pool of Light, which is in three volumes. Um, which is about consciousness, and the first volume is about neuroscience and consciousness and, and physics and consciousness, and the second volume is about Eastern and Western traditions and about John's teaching and the Berkeley Psychic Institute, and then the third volume is called The Crisis and Future of Consciousness, and that really goes much more deeply into what interests me most at the moment, which is to try and conceive of a universe which includes consciousness, which includes conscious beings like us, at the same time as it integrates the, the findings of science. And even though Stephen Hawking wouldn't, and wouldn't be interested in being included, I think that his model of the universe put together with a model, a Sethian model, and a model that includes consciousness begins to approach something as complex as the universe actually is. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm well, trying to. Well, fix are you talking that. about? Well, are you talking about something like a fourth culture where you have the original two cultures from C.P. Snow, that book, back in the what late fifties, early sixties, and then John Brockman who basically coined the term the third culture, which is the, uh, the blending of those um, two cultures, and then a fourth culture, which is a blending of consciousness and science. I guess if you put it that way, I, I, think, that, I think that if you stop for a moment and just look inside yourself at the, at the kind of complex vortex that you are, I mean, just, just think of what's going on and that, and, and then that's going on for every, every at some level for every creature. Um, this is a part of the universe. It's it can't be explained away by neuroscience, which 
knows a lot about matter, about consciousness once it's inside matter, but has no idea what it is or how it got into matter. And I and I've been over the you know the the models, the Darwinian models, exhaustively. And I, I don't I don't believe. Well, what about what about the MIT the the new thing from MIT and Max Tegmark um, that consciousness itself is a state of matter like a solid, a liquid, or gas. Uh, I suppose that that gives it its 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 appropriate stat status. Um, mm -hmm. um, I think that consciousness is intrinsic in the universe. So I don't just my critique of the Darwinian model would be that it's not it's you, it's not just an algorithmic outcome of molecular interactions under under natural selection. It is that, but it is that only because consciousness was already there as an intrinsic feature of the universe, and the, those molecular structures eventually. Um, um, became capable of conducting it, and that no, differs. You know. The scientific view is that those molecular structures, through playing around with their own algorithm, ultimately became conscious somewhat adventitiously, and that it's just a random event, and they might as well not have become conscious if things had gone a different way. I don't think so. I think that we got to hit a break. By the way, Nancy, we were well over. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. We've got to reconnect a couple of people. And right, I'm back. Yeah. Okay. So let's, but let's we're back. Break, yeah. We're going to take a break. Yeah. Okay. We'll okay, be right so back. We'll take a break. So, everybody, we'll be right back with our guest, uh, Rick Lertzman, Richard Grossinger, talking about very esoteric material as well as material from the past. So, we are Bill and Nancy Burns on Future Theater Live on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio. And we're back after this. phenomenon either we like it or not is already very much part of our reality i've been on panels with uh, military people who you know claim that they've seen the aliens buzzing our missile silos they have very large eyes and you know i found their stare extremely difficult to bear this is martin willis the host of podcast ufo and we are here on the dark matter radio network every wednesday from 8 p.m to 10 p.m eastern standard time it is my commitment to bring you an entertaining weekly show that takes a hard look at the UFO phenomena. Are they extraterrestrial? Well, are they interdimensional? Are they time travelers or something we have not even thought of yet? We explore these questions with interesting guests and witnesses from all around the globe. In addition, we bring you weekly UFO news with Open Minds TV, Alejandro Rojas. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep your eyes to the sky. Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. 
And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. The George Rodriguez Show. Who? I said the George Rodriguez Show. You don't know George Rodriguez? Wasn't he the guy that filled in for Neil Rogers? Yes. That George Rodriguez. What's he like? Oh, he's a short little Cuban feller. Kind of funny looking. Well, when's he on? 12 to 3, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on SoFloRadio.com and SoFloRadio.net. The George Rodriguez Show is much more than adequate. Here's a riddle for you. What do the California gold rush of the 1850s, secret societies, coded messages, mysterious 19th century flying machines, and an early 20th century outside artist named Charles A.A. Delshaw all have in common? The Secrets of Delshaw by Dennis Crenshaw and Pete Navarro. Go to www.secretsofdelshaw.com to learn more. And we are back with our guest, Richard Grossinger and Rick Lertzman, talking about everything from Grossinger's back in the 1950s and Eddie Fisher and Max Jacobson and Milton Blackstone all the way to the nature of consciousness. You know, one thing, Richard, that I wanted to ask you um, was that when you before the break, when you were talking about the nature of consciousness as, as kind of like um, <clears throat> superseding matter, so to speak, the last invention that Thomas Edison worked on for the last decade of his life from the 1920s until he died, I think, in 1932, was a, mach- was a machine, literally a communications device that literally could pick up on exactly what you were saying, that somehow there was a tangible material nature to consciousness that was disembodied it didn't have a human shape to it but it was disembodied and he actually developed a machine which he demonstrated uh to some friends including psychic uh, channelers and mediums that he thought would be able to pick up the presence of departed spirits if they crossed um something like a particle beam (laughs) I know it's interesting. I none. It, it's kind of interesting and peripheral, both. Right, but that was the fascination. Again, this is circa 1925, circa right. you know, right after the war. It's it kind of a- like the aliens moving faster than the speed of light. Um, we're talking about stuff that's at a level so far beyond measuring, you know, departed souls. That um, I mean, it's. It's like um, it's like in John, in the system John's using. Um, we're we're at the bottom. We're we're near the bottom of forty nine frequencies of um, of energy or information, whatever. Well, you want well, to call how, it. how does how does John suggest we raise our energies? Does he have any concrete suggestions? He doesn't. No, we're where we're supposed to be. Well then, we're, why would he? Te- why would he? Why would he shoot down at us like that? From a, you know. We um, 
Well, you work on you work on enlarging your your sense of um, of the kind of planes planes of being around you, and that's a fulfilling practice, and it it, it makes your life richer and fuller. But he he kind of resists the notion that we're in some way exiled here to a lesser state. Um, mm, right. the, we're here in a in a physical form because this is the way to experience the kind of inner texture of the universe, and it's mm -hmm. an extremely dense, poignant state filled with uh, a kind of. Um, tremendous beauty, tremendous um, pain and wow. ugliness, and tremendous um, grief, and, and tremendous poetry. Epiphany, yeah, and all of these things are part of the universe. And in a way, what we are is the expansion of the universe through its own depth. And and as we experience these things. They um, they become part a part of a greater interdependent intelligence. But if we were to get up onto a higher plane somehow, if that were possible, we would in a sense lose the the richness um, of of this place. It's it's a it's a excruciating place, um, but there's no doubt that 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 we experience it very, very powerfully. And even if it is an illusion, it's an amazing illusion and well, there's nothing to replace it. Have you ever wondered or published or yourself researched the concept of the newosphere or the collective unconscious or the hive mind, as some people like Kevin Kelly talks about? Um, do you ever think about that? thing that's actually forming through the through the internet where people are reaching other people and thinking is you know trends come in faster the hive mind i mean i think about it and it's interesting but then i think about everything and i don't know i i don't i think that that's how to say it um Everything that is being driven into being by technology is coming out of consciousness. So its form within technology is really interesting. Nice, what's interesting. Even, yeah. What's even more interesting is the um, is the deeper vortex that's driving it into being, such that technology is finding it. So I'm less interested in the technology, although I enjoy it, and we're doing this show and. And I'm a full participant, um, but I'm well, actually. I have, uh, just, just, just to quickly, so that you don't think I'm completely out of my mind, I have found some fascinating, paranormal, weird situations going on with people that have become some of the premier programmers. There's a kind of a renegade way of programming that um, it, the machines and the people are getting closer and closer to understanding each other quicker. Right. Well, I it. believe that um, because because I believe that there's so much there that once you get these very complex and and powerful machines with these uh, all this memory, you're going to tap into the to the um, field of information which is all around us. Yes, and, um, and that's where uh, Bill should bring in right here our friend and don't with know what Charlie Osman. 
who's exactly. actually your neighbor uh, in in Berkeley, who um, who's a futurist. Well, I moved to Maine, but oh, you're you're not in Berkeley anymore. No, we moved last year to Maine. Okay, well, when you were in Berkeley, he was your neighbor, and mm-hmm. uh, one of the things he articulates is that. <clears throat> There will it's kind of like this Ray Kurzweilian moment that there will come a time when and I believe that time has already come, but there will come a time when there will be uh, not just a singularity of machines, but a singularity of humans and machines, at which point the machines seeing knowing that there has to be some kind of uh, uh, prime directive that the planet itself must survive because human beings have impressed their ingrams, uh, uh, their consciousness into computers. There is no need for corporeal human beings anymore. Yeah, well, um, I don't know. I mean, how could one not be engaged and interested in that? But it's a little bit like like take it or leave it. Um, um, I... I don't um, – yeah, if it happens that way, fine. But um, I don't think that it's dependent on happening that way. I think that we could have a catastrophe and all the machines could be destroyed and we're still going to get there. Um, we're still going to – We might get there faster. We might get there faster if that happens according to, say, Terrence McKenna where he believes we should go back yeah. to the archa- archaic and as quickly as possible. Right, and- so you've got all these different stories that, that we can follow. Right. And I think you just have to decide what story you're living, because you can choose which one to live. I, I, don't, I, I shy away from the, um, the, 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 how do you say, curse? I don't know how to pronounce his name. Well, it's Ray Kurzweil. Yeah, it's Ray Kurzweil. Yeah, I've always shied away from his his thing. It it just seems very technocratic to me. And, and well, he's not I, even the one who invented that thought, by the way. I I have actually in my notes somewhere. I have the actual guy that he he took it from, who again was in print before Kurzweil uh, came up with the singularity idea. I'm not talking about our friend in the UFO field, but um, yeah. So. No, but um, I keep thinking that that, I mean, uh, you know, like you're looking for like these teeny little outcroppings, these little events, like these little bubbles that happen in reality that point to much larger issues. I mean, for me, actually, since a friend of mine is writing this book with me right now um, on, on TWA Flight 800, that was one of those Kurzweilian moments where um, – it was a series of computers interlocked with cross-hatching radars and an artificial intelligence that on paper looked fantastic that actually decided to launch a missile during an exercise that brought down a commercial airliner. And, and let me quickly add And this. no human being was involved. Right. Let me quickly add this. The no human being is the important part. And we have had a caller who called Art Bell last Friday and he called into our show uh, Thursday and Friday, maybe even Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. And he was telling us that Jade Helm, which we heard a bit about, um, is an exercise to try to (coughs) get the bugs out of this. In other words, in a, because of the way the 
algorithms were written, the machines take over more often than they should, as in they should never. And so they they need to work the bugs out of this. It's already underway. It's actually a secret problem that's happening right now. Um, You put algorithms in and the machines then take over and make the the decision-making, you know, you well, can, that's you which, can, uh, uh, that is what this person, Charles Osman, said is probably the worst nightmare. Yes. That, that that decision is not a very friendly decision to biological entities like us. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> that's, um, <laughs> you know. And it's, um, also the, it's also the plot point, I think, for this series called Revolution. Um, I believe that's one of the reasons they turn the machines, all the electricity off, is because that's the only way to stop the machines. Right. You know. You know. Well, it's it's all you know. Again, I would repeat, it's all very interesting, but and and worthwhile. But I I come back to um, the most interesting things to me on the planet are things, uh, different things, the rainbow body. Of Tibetan Buddhism is much more interesting, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, it it seems to me more powerful um, as well, in you, a, as a, well. You go were ahead. in Cal- No, no. I mean, the question that I have for you is that you were in California uh, during the whole kind of New Age expansion in the 1970s, correct? Uh, the late well, 90s. yeah, some of it, yeah. Um, uh, did did you have any sense that there was um, I that there was an agenda behind this that was more than just human spiritualism expansion, but that there was some kind of another agenda going on there? You mean another human agenda or another an, an, another personal agenda? Another human personal political agenda no. going on? No, so that Esalen and and things like that. Uh, we're not. I'm. I'm. I enjoy conspiracy theories, but I believe few of them. And as you may have see, heard on my show with Hoagland, I, I, you know, kind of debated him on that. I challenged him on his conspiracy theories. I, I, I think that some of them are more interesting than others, and um, and seem to lead into deeper paradoxes than others. Like, for instance. The conspiracy theories around 9/11 or the Roswell mm-hmm. ones, mm-hmm. but I don't find conspiracy theories around um, around Esalen interesting or around um, around kind of New Age stuff. But I, would, I would you would you publish a book that you truly knew was at base a fantasy as say nonfiction? Yeah. What is your? Where do you put your? Where do you draw your line if you thoroughly do not believe the? Book? Well, you know, it's funny because there was a book like that that we published um, that was quite successful, and our daughter named it um, unintentionally. It was called "Nothing in This Book Is True," but it's exactly. Ah. Oh, I love that book. Yeah, yeah. me too. And yeah, because uh, your daughter named it as you were leaving, basically leaving the house of the fella. Yeah, yeah, Bob Frisell. Yeah, it, it had been called internal and external Merkabas. Um, exactly. Now, how did your daughter come up with that? That brilliant title. She just, it said, was a good she, title. she just said as we were leaving, it's me who thought of it as a book title. She just said as we left his house, nothing he said is true, but it's exactly how things are. And it just yes. clicked right away. I yes. said, that's the title. 
Um, and then there came to be a Lloyd Pye book that came out with a similar title, which I used to have, and I believe I just recently sold my only copy. Oh. I'm not positive, but but do you remember another book coming out? No, with, I, sorry, no, I I don't. That, uh, but uh, but that but okay, so yeah, so what? So yeah, but it was so well titled that your and covered. also things things can be not true in a literal sense, but they point to a deeper truth. Exactly. Um, right. Exactly. There is some. There are certain things that we intuitively know to be true that we can't really speak of, and so we make up stories because the stories we make up have an element of truth, um, and yet when you, you know, like I've been thinking about this recently with reading a lot of stuff online about the moon and the aliens on the moon, and I don't, I mean, basically I don't, I mean, who cares what I believe? I, I think if I had to call it, I would say I don't believe in the aliens on the moon. But I think that all of the descriptions of it are of them of that of that situation—the alien brain on the moon—the um, um, right. just innumerable things that I I've heard—they're all really important because they speak at it. They speak to a deeper truth. Yeah, about, they speak to, to myth and metaphor, basically. But they but, also but, speak but, but, to a sense of 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 an a latent unconscious um, force yeah. that's that's yeah. operating that um, doesn't really have a location, and so when we place it on the moon, we are placing it on many moons. We're placing it on the NASA moon. We're placing well, well, it on the mythological moon. We're, uh, we've got one on- more. One minute. one more minute. One minute. I want to go. ask you really quickly: um, if the face on Mars is t- thoroughly debunked, can we keep that in that category of pure mythology, and we love it so much? Because I do. Yeah, well, we can, and I don't think it'll be debunked totally in our lifetime because Good. we've seen close-up pictures, and those people who know how to look think that the close-up pictures, far from. Uh, Far from exposing it as just um, a you know a, Good. A rock, show show um, structure. Good. Okay. Well, I think we are done. Um, thank you, Richard Grossiger. Thank you, Richard Lertzman. Thanks, Rick. I hope you're around tomorrow. <laughs> um, I'm He's very talkative on this one. Yeah. Where are I'm you getting... guys located? All well, we're in New Hope, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so I'm so so Rick. I'm getting the hard copy tomorrow morning and i will certainly be on the phone to you hard goodbye hard goodbye Uh, okay so hard goodbye uh stay tuned for art bell who's guest tonight yeah and next week we have philippe moro here and we'll be discussing christopher lee um the 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 um art bell's guest tonight is uh steve bassett and um uh, paradigm research so stay tuned for that and we are your co-hosts bill and nancy burns with our guest richard grosker and richard lertzman saying thank you for joining us from the banks of primrose creek in beautiful downtown solberry village on the dark matter digital network and psn radio and we will see you all next week thank you